Section 34 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1F, Section 34, Chapter 69, Part 4. Russell perceived this irregularity, and desired to have the point argued by counsel. The Chief Justice told him that this favor could not be granted unless he previously confessed the facts charged upon him. The artificial confounding of the two species of treason, though a practice supported by many precedents, is the chief, but not the only hardship of which Russell had reason to complain on his trial. His defense was feeble, and he contented himself with protesting that he never had entertained any design against the life of the king. His veracity would not allow him to deny the conspiracy for an insurrection. The jury were men of fair and reputable characters, but zealous royalists. After a short deliberation, they brought in the prisoner guilty. Applications were made to the king for a pardon. Even money, to the amount of one hundred thousand pounds, was offered to the Duchess of Portsmouth by the old Earl of Bedford, father to Russell. The king was inexorable. He had been extremely harassed with the violence of the country party and he had observed that the prisoner, besides his secret designs, had always been carried to the highest extremity of opposition in Parliament. Russell had even adopted a sentiment similar to what we meet with in a letter of the younger Brutus. Had his father, he said, advised the king to reject the exclusion bill, he would be the first to move for a parliamentary impeachment against him. When such determined resolution was observed, his popularity, his humanity, his justice, his very virtues, became so many crimes, and were used as arguments against sparing him. Charles, therefore, would go no further than remitting the more ignominious part of the sentence which the law requires to be pronounced against traitors. Lord Russell, said he, shall find that I am possessed of that prerogative which, in the case of Lord Stafford, he thought proper to deny me. As the fury of the country party had rendered it impossible for the king, without the imminent danger of his crown, to pardon so many Catholics, whom he firmly believed innocent and even affectionate and loyal to him, he probably thought that, since the edge of the law was now ready to fall upon that party themselves, they could not reasonably expect that he would interpose to save them. Russell's consort, a woman of virtue, daughter and heir of the good Earl of Southampton, threw herself at the king's feet, and pleaded with many tears the merits and loyalty of her father, as an atonement for those errors into which honest, however mistaken, principles had seduced her husband. These supplications were the last instance of female weakness, if they deserve the name, which she betrayed. Finding all applications vain, she collected courage, and not only fortified herself against that fatal blow, but endeavored by her example to strengthen the resolution of her unfortunate lord. With a tender and decent composure, 
they took leave of each other on the day of his execution. The bitterness of death is now past, said he, when he turned from her. Lord Cavendish had lived in the closest intimacy with Russell, and deserted not his friend in the present calamity. He offered to manage his escape by changing clothes with him and remaining at all hazards in his place. Russell refused to save his own life by an expedient which might expose his friend to so many hardships. When the Duke of Monmouth by message offered to surrender himself, if Russell thought that this measure would anywise contribute to his safety, it will be no advantage to me, he said, to have my friends die with me. Some of his expressions discover not only composure, but good humor in this melancholy extremity. The day before his execution he was seized with a bleeding at the nose. I shall not now let blood to divert this distemper, said he to Dr. Burnet, who attended him. That will be done to-morrow. A little before the sheriffs conducted him to the scaffold, he wound up his watch. Now I have done, said he, with time, and henceforth must think solely of eternity. The scaffold was erected in Lincoln's Inn Fields, a place distant from the tower, and it was probably intended, by conducting Russell through so many streets, to show the mutinant city their beloved leader, once the object of all their confidence, now exposed to the utmost rigors of the law. As he was the most popular among his own party, so was he ever the least obnoxious to the opposite faction, and his melancholy fate united every heart, sensible of humanity, in a tender compassion for him. Without the least change of countenance, he laid his head on the block, and at two strokes it was severed from his body. In the speech he delivered to the sheriffs, he was very anxious to clear his memory from any imputation of ever intending the king's death, or any alteration in the government. He could not explicitly confess the projected insurrection without hurting his friends, who might still be called in question for it. But he did not purge himself of that design which, in the present condition of the nation, he regarded as no crime. By many passages in his speech, he seems to the last to have lain under the influence of party zeal, a passion which, being nourished by a social temper, and clothing itself under the appearance of principle, it is almost impossible for a virtuous man who has acted in public life ever thoroughly to eradicate. He professed his entire belief in the popish plot, and he said that, though he had often heard the seizure of the guards mentioned, he had ever disapproved of that attempt, to which he added that the massacring of so many innocent men in cool blood was so like a popish practice that he could not but abhor it. Upon the whole, the integrity and virtuous intentions, rather than the capacity of this unfortunate nobleman, seem to have been the shining parts of his character. Algernon Sidney was next brought to his trial. This gallant person, son of Earl of Leicester, had entered deeply into the war against the late king, and though nowise tainted with enthusiasm, he had so far shared in all the councils of the independent Republican Party as to have been named on the High Court of Justice which tried and condemned that monarch. 
he thought not proper however to take his seat among the judges he ever opposed cromwell's usurpation with zeal and courage and after making all efforts against the restoration he resolved to take no benefit of the general indemnity but chose voluntary banishment rather than submit to a government and family which he abhorred as long as the republican party had any existence he was active in every scheme however uncompromising which tended to promote their cause but at length in sixteen seventy seven finding it necessary for his private affairs to return to england he had applied for the king's pardon and had obtained it when the factions arising from the popish plot began to run high sidney full of those ideas of liberty which he had imbibed from the great examples of antiquity joined the popular party and was even willing to seek a second time through all the horrors of civil war for his adored republic from this imperfect sketch of the character and conduct of this singular personage it may easily be conceived how obnoxious he was become to the court and ministry what alone renders them blamable was the illegal method which they took for effecting their purpose against him on sidney's trial they produced a great number of witnesses who proved the reality of a plot in general and when the prisoner exclaimed that all these evidences said nothing of him he was answered that this method of proceeding however irregular had been practised in the prosecutions of the popish conspirators a topic more fit to condemn one party than to justify the other the only witness who deposed against sidney was lord howard but as the law required two witnesses a strange expedient was fallen on to supply this deficiency in ransacking the prisoner's closet some discourses on government were found in which he had maintained principles favorable indeed to liberty but such as the best and most dutiful subjects in all ages have been known to embrace the original contract the source of power from a consent of the people the lawfulness of resisting tyrants the preference of liberty to the government of a single person these papers were asserted to be equivalent to a second witness and even to many witnesses the prisoner replied that there was no other reason for ascribing those papers to him as the author besides a similitude of hand a proof which was never admitted in criminal prosecutions that allowing him to be the author he had composed them solely for his private amusement and had never published them to the world or even communicated them to any single person that when examined they appeared by the color of the ink to have been written many years before and were in vain produced as evidence of a present conspiracy against the government and that where the law positively requires two witnesses one witness attended with the most convincing circumstances could never suffice much less when supported by a circumstance so weak and precarious all these arguments though urged by the prisoner with great courage and pregnancy of reason had no influence the violent and inhuman jefferies was now chief justice and by his direction a partial jury was easily prevailed on to give verdict against sidney his execution followed a few days after he complained and with reason of the iniquity of the sentence 
but he had too much greatness of mind to deny those conspiracies with monmouth and russell in which he had been engaged he rather gloried that he now suffered for that good old cause in which from his earliest youth he said he had enlisted himself the execution of sidney is regarded as one of the greatest blemishes of the present reign the evidence against him it must be confessed was not legal and the jury who condemned him were for that reason very blamable but that after sentence passed by a court of judicature the king should interpose and pardon a man who though otherwise possessed of merit was undoubtedly guilty who had ever been a most inflexible and most inveterate enemy to the royal family and who lately had even abused the king's clemency might be an act of heroic generosity but can never be regarded as a necessary and indispensable duty howard was also the sole evidence against hamden and his testimony was not supported by any material circumstance the crown lawyers therefore found it in vain to try the prisoner for treason they laid the indictment only for a misdemeanor and obtained sentence against him the fine imposed was exorbitant no less than forty thousand pounds holloway a merchant of bristol one of the conspirators had fled to the west indies and was now brought over he had been outlawed but the year allowed him for surrendering himself was not expired a trial was therefore offered him but as he had at first confessed his being engaged in a conspiracy for an insurrection and even allowed that he had heard some discourse of an assassination though he had not approved of it he thought it more expedient to throw himself on the king's mercy he was executed persisting in the same confession sir thomas armstrong who had been seized in holland and sent over by chidley the king's minister was precisely in the same situation with holloway but the same favor or rather justice was refused him the lawyers pretended that unless he had voluntarily surrendered himself before the expiration of the time assigned he could not claim the privilege of a trial not considering that the seizure of his person ought in equity to be supposed the accident which prevented him the king bore a great enmity against this gentleman by whom he believed the duke of monmouth to have been seduced from his duty he also asserted that armstrong had once promised cromwell to assassinate him though it must be confessed that the prisoner justified himself from this imputation by very strong arguments these were the reasons of that injustice which was now done him it was apprehended that sufficient evidence of his guilt could not be produced and that even the partial juries which were now returned and which allowed themselves to be entirely directed by jefferies and other violent judges would not give sentence against him on the day that russell was tried essex a man eminent both for virtues and abilities was found in the tower with his throat cut the coroner's inquest brought in their verdict self-murder yet because two children ten years old one of whom too departed from his evidence had affirmed that they heard a great noise from his window and that they saw a hand throw out a bloody razor these circumstances were laid hold of and the murder was ascribed to the king and the duke who happened that morning to pay a visit to the tower 
Essex was subject to fits of deep melancholy, and had been seized with one immediately upon his commitment. He was accustomed to maintain the lawfulness of suicide, and his countess, upon a strict inquiry which was committed to the care of Dr. Burnet, found no reason to confirm the suspicion. Yet could not all these circumstances, joined to many others, entirely remove the imputation. It is no wonder that faction is so productive of vices of all kinds, for, besides that it inflames all the passions, it tends much to remove those great restraints, horror, and shame when men find that no iniquity can loose them the applause of their own party, and no innocence secure them against the calumnies of the opposite. But though there is no reason to think that Essex had been murdered by any orders from court, it must be acknowledged that an unjustifiable use in Russell's trial was made of that incident. The King's counsel mentioned it in their pleadings as a strong proof of the conspiracy, and it is said to have had great weight with the jury. It was insisted on in Sidney's trial for the same purpose. Some memorable causes, tried about this time, though they have no relation to the Rye House conspiracy, show the temper of the bench and of the juries. Oates was convicted of having called the Duke a popish traitor, was condemned in damages to the amount of one hundred thousand pounds, and was adjudged to remain in prison till he should make payment. A like sentence was passed upon Dutton Colt for a like offence. Sir Samuel Bernardiston was fined ten thousand pounds because, in some private letters which had been intercepted, he had reflected on the government. This gentleman was obnoxious because he had been foreman of that jury which rejected the bill against Shaftesbury. A pretense was therefore fallen upon for punishing him though such a precedent may justly be deemed a very unusual act of severity, and sufficient to destroy all confidence in private friendship and correspondence. There is another remarkable trial which shows the disposition of the courts of judicature, and which, though it passed in the ensuing year, it may not be improper to relate in this place. One Rosewell, a Presbyterian preacher was accused by three women of having spoken treasonable words in a sermon. They swore to two or three periods, and agreed so exactly together that there was not the smallest variation in their depositions. Rosewell, on the other hand, made a very good defense. He proved that the witnesses were lewd and infamous persons. He proved that, even during Cromwell's usurpation, he had always been a royalist, that he prayed constantly for the king and his family, and that in his sermons he often inculcated the obligations of loyalty, and as to the sermon of which he was accused, several witnesses who heard it, and some who wrote it in shorthand, deposed that he had used no such expressions as those which were imputed to him. He offered his own notes as a further proof. The women could not show by any circumstance or witness that they were at his meeting, and the expressions to which they deposed were so gross that no man in his senses could be supposed to employ them before a mixed audience. It was also urged that it appeared next to impossible for three women to remember so long a period upon one single hearing, 
and to remember it so exactly as to agree upon this issue he would pronounce with his usual tone of voice a period as long as that to which they had sworn and then let them try to repeat it if they could what was more unaccountable they had forgotten even the text of his sermon nor did they remember any single passage but the words to which they gave evidence after a strong defence the solicitor-general thought not proper to make any reply even jeffreys went no further than some general declamations against conventicles and presbyterians yet so violent were party prejudices that the jury gave a verdict against the prisoner which however appeared so palpably unjust that it was not carried into execution the duke of monmouth had absconded on the first discovery of the conspiracy and the court could get no intelligence of him at length halifax who began to apprehend the too great prevalence of the royal party and who thought that monmouth's interest would prove the best counterpoise to the duke's discovered his retreat and prevailed on him to write two letters to the king full of the tenderest and most submissive expressions the king's fondness was revived and he permitted monmouth to come to court he even endeavoured to mediate a reconciliation between his son and his brother and having promised monmouth that his testimony should never be employed against any of his friends he engaged him to give a full account of the plot but in order to put the country party to silence he called next day an extraordinary council and informed them that monmouth had showed great penitence for the share which he had had in the late conspiracy and had expressed his resolutions never more to engage in such criminal enterprises he went so far as to give orders that a paragraph to the like purpose should be inserted in the gazette monmouth kept silence till he had obtained his pardon in form but finding that by taking this step he was entirely disgraced with his party and that even though he should not be produced in court as an evidence his testimony being so publicly known might have weight with juries of any future trial he resolved at all hazards to retrieve his honor his emissaries therefore received orders to deny that he had ever made any such confession as that which was imputed to him and the party exclaimed that the whole was an imposture of the court the king provoked at this conduct banished monmouth his presence and afterwards ordered him to depart the kingdom end of section thirty four chapter sixty nine part four recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n voice dot com